Diet is one of the biggest things that we can do in our own lives to help improve our hormonal fluctuations. It's not even just about diet. We can do things like movement, prioritizing sleep. All of these things play a vital role actually in helping us to manage our hormone health in the best way possible. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Nags Head, North Carolina, New Iberia, Louisiana, and Christchurch, New Zealand. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 61 of season 5, number 360 overall. We're going to be talking about hormone health today with the plant-powered doctor, Dr. Gemma Newman. She is here to make her exam room debut, and man, was she fun to talk to. Had a lot of very interesting things to say. Personally, I didn't realize how many women are struggling with their hormone health. Didn't really quite grasp that until this conversation with Dr. Newman. So you will hear her talk about that number and even the number of women who are living with PCOS and they just don't even have a clue that they have it. They're just suffering. They don't understand what's going on, what's happening with their body and why it's happening. So hopefully today, someone who is baffled by their symptoms will hear this and say, oh, so that's what's been going on. Also today, we're going to be learning about what's been driving these numbers up and up and how food choices, lifestyle choices are major contributing factors to this. And so too are some products in our environment. You may have heard recently in the news about microplastics. Well, we're going to be touching on that during our conversation as well, but at the heart of the show today is finding relief and feeling better, becoming healthier, less painful periods, cramping and bloating, less unwanted facial hair, all of the things that can make you feel downright rotten and self-conscious. Dr. Newman is here to help. And the last thing I will say before we get started is to my fellow male listeners out there. Guys, I got to tell you, coming from the male perspective, I feel like I learned a lot. So keep listening. Don't turn this one off because our conversation actually even gave me better perspective on things that helped me relate to my wife better. And so women, with that in mind also, don't be shy about sharing this episode with the men in your life either, right? Just put it on, turn it up, and raise his health IQ. I promise you, it is fun and it is insightful and it is something that he will appreciate having invested his time to listen. So let's go ahead, get rolling with it right now. Dr. Gemma Newman on the Exam Room Podcast. It is so good to have you on the show after all this time. It is so good to be on the show. Thank you, Chuck. I've been looking forward to this for a really long time. 
you and me both. And you are coming over here stateside uh, to Washington to present at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine. And you will be talking about, matter of fact, the title of your presentation is How Can Female Hormone Health Be Improved by Lifestyle Change and a Plant-Based Diet? Phenomenal topic. We've talked about that a lot on the show, but I'm really glad that you're here to talk about it today because this is going to be an episode that I think, Dr. Newman, I want all of our female listeners, the female exam roomies, to share with their significant others because I'm just going to be asking you questions from the guy perspective. And a lot of times, us guys, we just don't understand. So it's on you today to help us understand if you're up for the challenge. <laughs> I'm definitely up for the challenge, Chuck. And I couldn't agree more. You know, I think a lot more families, a lot more marriages would be a lot happier if the guys knew a little bit more about the hormones that their family members and loved ones have to deal with every day. So yeah, I am definitely up for that. Okay, well, let's let's raise those health IQs, as I like to say. Uh, I guess just based off of the topic of your presentation, I mean, how can uh, the the hormones of females, how can they like that health there improve if they make some modifications away from that standard Western high fat diet and sedentary lifestyle into more of a healthier diet where they're up and they're also active? Yeah, you can make huge differences. And I think a lot of people don't realize that because, you know, we certainly doctors, you know, we're taught about um, the menstrual cycle and we've taught about periods and about fibroids and about endometriosis and about menopause. Um, but we're not really taught about how our lifestyles can impact these conditions. And, you know, I say conditions, but of course, periods and menopause is what every uh, woman uh, will go through at some stage of her life. And it's something that even women don't really know a lot about often before they go through it. And so I think education on this is so important. Um, and yeah, diet is one of the biggest things that we can do in our own lives to help improve our hormonal fluctuations. And as you say, it's not even just about diet. Uh, we can do things like movement, prioritizing sleep, looking at our overall well-being. Uh, all of these things play a vital role, actually, in helping us to manage our hormone health in the best way possible. All right. So let's start with the diet here. Um, over here, it's referred to as the standard American diet, the sad diet. But clearly, the fast food fascination is not just limited to within the United States. Uh, how much of a role is that playing in the overall health of uh, your cohorts over in the UK? Yeah, I think that we have a very similar dietary pattern. I mean, over here, we don't call it the sad diet. We call it the Western style diet because essentially, you know, we're not American. But yes, it's the same thing, really. Um, and we see that playing out with our rates of obesity. Um, and it's important as well when we look at other conditions that are um, related not just to genetics, but also to lifestyle in terms of hormones such as polycystic ovarian syndrome. And I think it's really important to empower women and men to recognize some of these things because believe it or not I don't know if you knew this Chuck but about one in ten women will actually potentially suffer from polycystic ovarian syndrome many of whom maybe up to even 80 percent don't even realize that they have it um, and so it's really important I think not only to be aware of the things that we can do to improve our hormone health but also just some of the signs and symptoms of of these hormonal challenges that we'll have that will help point us in the direction of greater health. 
What are some of those symptoms? I mean, if you're talking about 80% don't even recognize that they have it, are we talking about subtle symptoms? What, what should women be looking for? Well, if we do a little bit of a backtrack, um, I think, you know, when, it, when we're talking about periods, for example, uh, they've been occurring earlier and earlier um, in the Western world. And that may well be something to do with our diets. And it's not necessarily just that we are generally taller or healthier or have more access to nutrition. I think premature uh, puberty is also something to be really wary of because that's happening a lot more frequently. And premature puberty is related to increased risk of heart disease later in life, even adult onset asthma, obesity and diabetes. And so when you go through premature puberty essentially your periods are starting earlier than they should do and many children now are potentially starting their periods even uh, as early as um as seven eight and nine and that would be classed you know as premature puberty and that's something to be aware of as parents and then you know moving through into those teenage years many teenagers will notice that their periods fluctuate they may not happen every month like clockwork and especially in South Asian populations, if you're going through your periods in your teens and your periods are irregular for more than a year, that's actually a fairly um, important sign because that could be an indication of polycystic ovarian syndrome. And the things that we look for with polycystic ovarian syndrome are irregular periods um, or periods that have been absent um, for a period of time, um, as well as sometimes excess facial hair, uh, sometimes excess weight. Um, and, you know, there may be sort of more subtle symptoms that you wouldn't necessarily associate with polycystic ovarian syndrome, such as depression or anxiety or sleep disturbances. Um, and the main thing that really drives that is insulin resistance. And so it's a hormonal condition that also predisposes uh, people to type 2 diabetes as well. So I think the main thing that you'd look for would be delayed periods. Um, uh, so periods that are happening less frequently than monthly. Um, and you may also look for other signs of androgen excess, which would be things like perhaps um, extra facial hair, um, sort of thinning of the hair on the head, maybe, or extra weight that you might be carrying. None of those sound particularly appealing. Uh, I can't imagine. Um, I want to go back to what it was you were saying, though, about women starting their period. Is, is You said as young as seven years old. Is, is that right? That would be premature uh, puberty. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's obviously, you know, they're, they're children. They shouldn't be having to deal with, with these things at that age. Um, uh, and it's happening more often in Western societies. Yeah. And I think that, that it's probably to do with not just extra nutrition, not just, um, you know, the fact that we have, um, you know, more nutrition that we've got access to. But actually, I think it's, you know, clearly harmful at that age um, to be going through puberty. And, you know, I think looking at the data that we have, although I would love to see more data, I think that there is um, a link with excess hormone exposures through things like microplastics and, um, you know, th things like that in our environments that we haven't really haven't really looked at enough. But I think we need to have much more research on. Yeah. When you use the term extra nutrition, um, I'm assuming you mean excess calories. That's just kind of the way that it's interpreted here over in the U.S. Is that right? Uh, I can't. Yes, I suppose I do. But not just that, you know, the, the, I suppose at times in the past, there have been nutritional gaps, too. 
um, that we've been able to fill, you know, nowadays. Uh, so things like iodine deficiency, for example, were really common. Uh, in fact, in the UK, there's a condition called Lancashire neck, uh, which back in the 1800s used to actually indicate that you had iodine deficiency because of the goiter in your neck, because the soils in that part of the country were very um, iodine poor. And now, of course, we have a lot more access uh, to iodine unfortunately from cow's milk but also now thankfully uh, a lot of our plant milks are fortified and we can also get it from um, uh, supplementation and certain forms of seaweed so I don't just mean um, excess food I also mean that we're hopefully able to fill those gaps in nutrition that we may have had uh, in years gone by I just yeah and I just Obviously, as a guy, I'm never going to understand the monthly cycle, the menstrual cycle. But I would imagine, though, being that young, I'm just blown away being that young and having that starting to occur with your body. I mean, that's got to like freak a young girl out, right? Of course, especially if they haven't been told what it is. You're basically starting to bleed. You probably think you're dying. (laughs) This is horrible for them. So, yeah, I think more education is needed. Uh, not it shouldn't just be up to mums to teach their daughters because you know there's many kinds of blended families these days and there's many kinds of families that you know you can't you can't just rely I don't think on on mums sharing that maternal wisdom with their daughters I think it's really important actually to have this education in the school setting as well so that that young girls can understand what what they're going through and what to expect and you know to learn about sanitary products and how to use them and in fact even the word sanitary products I don't really like because it implies that you're <laughs> when you're having a period i think we should just call them period products perhaps that's my opinion i I, I mean there's it's not so subtle wording you're not you're not wrong on that you know it just conjures up like kind of a a weird emotion with its sanitary product right it's horrible isn't it i think we we just need to shake this all up and just you know call it what it is that there's periods (laughs) and we've got period products (laughs) and i mean yeah right i mean i don't know if the person who thought up that term was trying to eliminate the term period but sanitary product that's like 20 times more awkward than a period product right oh my goodness i I mean (laughs) and what about the you know the poor blindfold gentleman who goes down and he's like sanitary products this must mean you know like bleach and soap and things like that and he's on the completely wrong aisle in the grocery store i don't know yeah you definitely don't want to be putting that stuff in (laughs) you no no Um, I want to ask you about another condition that is uh, hormone driven. This is one where, I mean, on this show, I was really introduced to it for the first time and the stories of transformation and health rebounds have just knocked me over. I'm talking about endometriosis. How much of that is driven by hormones and diet and lifestyle? Yeah, I think endometriosis is a really important topic to educate ourselves on, men and women, because um, many women go undiagnosed for a long time and it can actually really affect their quality of life and their fertility if they don't receive a timely diagnosis. So endometriosis is a condition where you get um, essentially the womb lining or the endometrial cells can start to crop up in other parts of the body, usually the pelvis, but it can happen anywhere. Rarely even uh, endometrial deposits have been found in places such as the brain and lungs. And the problem with that is that when you have your monthly bleed and your cycle um, where you would shed blood through the womb uh, and through the vagina, 
when you have endometriosis, you have those womb lining cells, those endometrial cells, but they're also bleeding in other parts of the pelvis usually. And that can cause irritation, that can cause localized inflammation. And when it continues without having a diagnosis, uh, you could be left with all sorts of problems. You can have parts of your bowel or bladder sticking together. You could have pain during sex. You could have pain um, even when you do a poo or a wee, and you can have pain at other times in your cycle. So people can get really confused. Doctors often or perhaps misdiagnose it as irritable bowel um, syndrome because the pain isn't necessarily classically just with your period. Uh, you could get it at other times as well. And it's uh, it's really serious. It can affect women's lives immeasurably. You know, they can have lots of days off sick with horrendous period pain. And, you know, interestingly, period pain can even be as painful as a heart attack, uh, because many people, especially those with diabetes, aren't necessarily aware that they're having a heart attack when they have one. Um, and so, you know, this this is a really nasty, visceral pain. Uh, that will you know, give give women a really hard time. And they don't even know that they've got it unless they can seek a, a proper diagnosis. So it's really important that if you're having period pains that seem unnaturally painful, like really unpleasantly painful, that leave you in bed all day, unable to move. Um, and you know, if it hurts to have sex or if you get pain when you're peeing or when you're pooing, uh, these are really important signs to go and see your doctor. Yeah. And I've heard uh, stories that matter of fact, you know, people have come on the show and talked about their own experience with it. And one woman in particular was talking about having to call out of work and would just lay herself across the back of a chair to like put some sort of compression on the cramping. And then when her roommate would get home, she would be like, please just walk on my stomach. And the roommate was like, what in the world is going on? Just do it because the pain was so intense. Um, and so to hear you say that it can really mimic kind of the, the, the feeling of a heart attack, like that doesn't necessarily surprise me. I mean, it sounds horrific, but yeah, I, that is like some really intense pain. Again, from a male perspective, I don't think that many of my fellow guys recognize just how painful of a condition that can be. Yeah, it's it's heartbreaking, really. And I don't. The sad thing is, I don't think a lot of women recognize how painful it can be either. So if they're going through it. You know, and if they're getting pain when they pee, pain when they poo, horrific pain during their periods, even pain when they're having an orgasm, and they think to themselves, what's wrong with me? You know, they, they assume, well, it can't be anything wrong. It must just be normal. Um, you know, so many women have come to me in the past and said, you know, I just I just get these really bad period pains. And then when I go through it with them and, and actually get a feel for what they're going through, I think to myself, you know, they've been suffering for years and they've just put it down to being you know maybe just overreacting or just trying to get used to the fact that it must be normal for women to go through this every month you know and it's really not and I suppose the advantage of talking about it on a show like this is that if you know women can listen and uh, men can listen and they can sort of pass on this wisdom to to each other so that if someone's really suffering they can go and get checked out and the good news is that if you get a timely diagnosis, then you can have medical treatments to help. And of course, as you've intimated, it is helpful to um, instigate lifestyle changes as well that can improve uh, the pain that you're experiencing. So yeah, th there is good news in this. And, and I'm glad that we're talking about it. Yeah, you know, I think the the biggest turnaround that I heard of was uh, with a woman by the name of Catherine Lawrence Ireland. Are you familiar with her story at all? 
I think it's one of the stories that Dr. Neil Bernard has shared and I loved hearing it. So yeah. yeah. I mean, macaroni and cheese every day, all day goes in for surgery for endometriosis. Just a few, well, I, I guess weeks, maybe a month or so after going plant-based doctor opens her up and closes her right back up. All that's left there is a little bit of scarring, but the endometriosis is gone. The doctor called it a miracle and well, her mom called it just a plant-based diet. So, uh, you know, it's, it's incredible to me how someone can abuse their body for so long with this unhealthy diet and lifestyle. And yet in such a relatively short amount of time, it can repair itself. It can. Yes. Although I would give you a caveat to say, that many women who are suffering from endometriosis are, are not necessarily eating in an unhealthy way. Um, and also that, you know, that kind of story is super inspiring. And I would love for all my patients to, to eat a, a predominantly whole foods and plant-based diet. But sometimes um, those kinds of transformations are not possible. And I don't want anyone to feel guilty if they've really tried hard and they, they still end up having some issues. But yeah, it's really exciting to hear stories like that. And it makes us feel, I hope, more empowered that we can make some changes ourselves and and get some real benefits and interestingly you know it's not even just about the food um there is some correlation as i sort of mentioned earlier with with plastics too plastics exposures things like phthalates there have been studies to show a correlation between um higher phthalate exposure and higher risk potentially of endometriosis so that's something to also talk about you know thinking about ways in which firstly we could get more research on this but also from an individual point of view what can we do to reduce our exposure to these kinds of plastics in our food and on our drink and I think that would be true, not even just for women, but for men as well. There's some research to suggest that uh, BPA exposure, phthalate exposure is associated with, you know, potentially higher rate of um, issues with your sperm count, um, issues with testicular abnormalities, being born with one testicle. Um, there's also a condition in men called hyperspadius where the wee tube comes out of the penis in the wrong place, slightly lower. And that has all been associated potentially with uh, exposure to plastics. And so we would all do well, I think, to limit our plastics exposures wherever possible. Uh, see, now that's an interesting thing. How, as a physician, do you approach having those types of conversations with your patients? I would imagine that very few of them walk through your doors and are expecting to talk about plastic when they're there for a completely, uh, a condition that they completely would disassociate with that. Yeah, I know. It's tricky. And I think I just take a very pragmatic approach and it depends on the person and it depends on... Um, I think the kind of conversation that we've been able to open up most important thing I think thing I think in any consultation is to listen first and I'm really fortunate because in my practice I work in a national health service practice I have patients coming to me who don't necessarily expect diet and lifestyle advice at all um, so it's actually quite nice to take them by surprise and talk about these things and hopefully empower them and the beauty of it is they can come back again another day um, they don't get charged at the point of service so if I feel that like they need to come back and see me I'll say why don't you book an appointment in two weeks in a month in three months we can review it it gives them some accountability it gives them somebody who cares enough to see them again and it gives me the opportunity to actually take the time 
when you know when people are uh, kind of receptive to it take the time to really talk these things through and you're right people don't expect to talk about diet lifestyle or plastics but i think it's actually quite a relief to them when they can find things that they can uh, you know really change and improve on it doesn't have to be everything it doesn't have to be you know sort of switching to 100% vegan or you know taking every possible plastic source out of your life because these things are really hard and you know it's almost impossible to do that um, overnight but if we become aware I think awareness is so key and that's where I always like to begin. So some of these conversations I would imagine for you are quite interesting. I would imagine that a number of your patients kind of have their heels dug in. I'm not going to change. I'm going to keep living this way. And it can be really hard to try to get that information across, especially when what we were just talking about, they're really ill-prepared for that conversation when they came in that day, right? So how do you help move the needle when somebody is really kind of dug in there? I listen because chances are if they're really dug in, uh, there's a reason why. And they may have some fixed beliefs that they want to explore with me um, regarding their health and things that have happened in the past, uh, reasons why they can't change. And you don't really get anywhere by telling people what to do. You have to listen first. So that's what I spend most of my time doing. And then if you ask the right kind of questions at a time at which they're most receptive, then they'll often come up with the answers themselves. And I want to go back also to something that you said when uh, we were talking about Catherine Lawrence Ireland. You're like, that's a phenomenal story, but it's not everyone's story. I think, and, and thank you for saying that. Um, because there are a lot of people who make these transitions and they are expecting that level of, um, of healing that quickly. Um, how do you manage a patient's expectations? Because there's somebody right now who I'm very close with who is going through that transformation and it's just not happening as quickly as they would like. And it's hard for me to sit here and kind of see the the angst and the frustration. Yes, they're making progress, but it hasn't been this overnight miracle. How do you kind of taper the patient expectations and keep them motivated? It's a really good question. And it's very individual. And I think the the most important thing is to actually just encourage them to focus on what's, what's motivating them to do it. And also how they feel about doing it. Because if there's a lot of angst and frustration around it, then that's not going to feel good in the body. And what I would love for my patients and for anybody listening to know is that these kinds of changes, sometimes they take time, sometimes they don't. We're all so different. We've got different um, backgrounds. We've got different uh, levels of hormone exposures. We're talking about hormones right now. You know, we're not all born with the same hormonal milieu. You know, we have um, potentially microplastics exposures from birth. Um, we have, you know, smoking exposures from birth. We have all sorts of different reasons, um, physically, emotionally, why we would not necessarily all react in the same way. And of course, also, I think when it comes to things like uh, even weight change, I think it can be really challenging because people will have done 100 crash diets and they will have gained the weight again. And that leaves you in a very unfortunate position metabolically where your body's really trying to hold on to all those extra pounds. And of course, 
you know, those hormone exposures that I talked about, they're generally stored in our fat tissue, which can be a problem as well. Uh, we have other thyroid issues, potentially. We have um, microbiome differences. We have different courses of antibiotics that we've taken in our lifetimes and how they have impacted our individual microbiome and how a microbiome responds to these changes. And we have different sleep patterns. We have so many different stress patterns. And I think that we're all so unique. And what I would hate for someone to, to go through is, is to think to themselves, right, well, I'm going to have a complete 180 health transformation within a month, within two months, within three months, because that doesn't happen for everybody. But if you can just maintain feeling good about who you are, regardless of what your body looks like, regardless of how your body feels, focusing on the things that you're grateful for, focusing on how how pleased you are that you've even begun to make changes. Look at the progress that you've made so far. Feel good about all those changes that you've made to your life and focus on that rather than focusing on what you're yet to achieve. You're a glass half full type of person, aren't you? I can see you've got that sunny disposition. Oh, you know what? I am. I can't help it. It's just the way I was born. And <laughs> this is it. You know, we're all born differently, but I think uh, yeah, I am for sure. And it's interesting because, you know, when I grew up, my, you know, my family were not like that. And so I think, you know, it's, it's interesting how our upbringing can affect the way we see the world and, and what we think of the people in it. And so I would encourage anyone out there who's struggling to just be a bit easier on themselves and to speak to themselves as they would a good friend. Wow. See, I like that. You know, um, somebody once told me that happiness is a choice. And I didn't really know what they meant until I got a little bit older. Um, but then sure enough, you know, that's that wisdom of the adult uh, that as a kid, you just kind of take for granted. Um, but yeah, it, it's 100% true. You've definitely made that choice. You can tell like you've been smiling this entire interview, you know, I dig that. Um, I want to go back to what it was you were talking about a second ago. You mentioned crash diets. And since we're on the topic of hormones, I'm just curious, like what happens to a woman's hormones when they basically turn their body into a crash test dummy and they're crashing time and time and time again with all of these wacky diets? Yeah, I mean, I think instinctively we will all know it's not great for our bodies to do that. Um, men too, but I think... There should be more research into how women's bodies are affected by this. And also fasting, I think, is an interesting topic because there's lots of mixed data on that. And I think especially coming up to menopause and for women who are having regular monthly cycles, we need a lot more data into uh, fasting, which is, you know, some people could take that into another form of crash dieting, couldn't they? Uh, and disordered eating as well. I think we need to know a lot more about how that affects our body and our hormones. And we just don't know a lot of that. But what I will say is that many different people have to achieve, have to do a lot of different kinds of work to achieve the same sort of size. So you could have 10 people all stood together who look the same on the outside physically. You know, they may have the same weight. They may even have the same muscle mass, but they, but then one on the left would have to do a 10 kilometer run or a six mile run every day. Um, and consume maybe four or 500 calories less every day to maintain 
that body size compared to the person on the right. Um, and that's just, you know, that kind of blows out of the water, the whole kind of calories in, calories out uh, simplicity that, that people often talk about. Because actually, as I mentioned, that hormonal milieu will change based on whether we've starved ourselves in the past, whether we've gone on crash diets, you know, how much our metabolism is trying to get us back to a certain set point and how long we've been doing that for. Um, and then, of course, you know, there are people who have had patterns of disordered eating, um, which can also impact our metabolism. So I think I guess that the sort of take home message would be um, slow and steady for the win. Uh, don't be disheartened if you are not um, steadily losing weight in the same way that you were maybe when you started eating more healthier and really make it into your new lifestyle. So you're not going to be looking at the scales every day or even every week. You're just going to be consistently making the choices that feel good to you and your body uh, without worrying too much about looks, I'd say. Just worry more about how you feel and how the food's making you feel. What research have you seen that shows uh, this? You know, the slower you make these changes, or the slower the weight comes off, um, the more likely the person is to be successful with maintaining that weight loss long term. So the research is quite mixed. Um, I've read some research to say that it's actually better to lose it quicker and then maintain it, and I've read others that says slow and steady is better. And so for me, I think people have to do what works for them. But I know from my own practice. Uh, and from reading about the experiences of many other people that crash diets are not particularly helpful. Uh, the vast majority of people will just regain the weight again. So it really has to be something that you feel you can sustain for a lifetime. And that's something that's quite hard to get your head around because, you know, a lot of people... <sighs> I mean, you can speak from personal experience. I know, Chuck, because you've been on an incredible journey yourself. And I'm sure you'll agree that the way that you live now is very different from the way that you lived when you were much heavier. And that's something that you've been able to maintain as your lifestyle, as your way of being. Uh, and that's something that I wish for everybody. No question about it. There's absolutely no question about it. It is so much more than just the food that I'm eating. I mean, everything in my life is different, right down to and including a sunny disposition like you, um, which is you know critically important. There's there's so many layers to this, but uh, I, I agree, um, and it is different for everybody as well. And it you know once you find what works for you, um, then you're really going to be in good shape. The way that I always explain it to people when they ask, I'm like. There's no one size fits all. There are some universal truths out there that we can all build upon. You know, for example, I, I believe in my heart of hearts that the plant-based diet is the healthiest diet out there. Um, it gives you the best possible chance for long-term health, optimum health, well into your golden years. Um, but I mean, that's just the foundation, right? You still have that whole house to build on top of that. And you can custom build that house using that foundation, that healthy foundation, and just building the best house for you based off of what works for you. And that's that individualized thing. And, um, and that finding, though, what worked for me, it was a lot of kind of trial and error. And um, that's, I guess, why people call it a journey, because that's exactly what it is, you know, but it makes it so worthwhile. And I know we're running out of time, but you've got your own journey. I would love, Dr. Newman, to bring you back so that you can share your incredible story with the exam roomies as well. 
of course, I'd love to come back anytime. And we know we've only just skimmed the surface of hormone health as well. But you're right. I think it really is a journey. And, you know, in the context of a journey, you know, you have to walk. I know that I don't remember the exact lines, but you do. You have to walk in someone else's shoes to really understand what they're going through. And so it's important, I think, to have compassion, not only for yourself, but also for others around you. If you see them struggling rather than sort of judgment, because, you know, we've all been through different things in our lives. And it's it's quite hard. Like, for example, adverse childhood experiences. We know from the data um, in in the field of psychology that many people who are struggling with weight issues have also struggled with physical or mental or sexual abuse um, in their childhood and beyond. And there's a huge correlation between the two. So I think, again, that's something to be mindful of, just to be aware that um, one person's journey is not going to be the same as another person's. Absolutely. And that's why I'm so excited to be able to share yours in the future. And uh, two more quick questions here um, before I let you go. I've started to get all of these emails from exam roomies who are like, you always have on such wonderful guests, but you never ask what they eat. So so (laughs) what does the average day look like for Dr. Jebba Newman as far as what's on your menu? Okay, so I generally love porridge or oatmeal, which I'm sure many of your exam roomies enjoy as well. Um, I add chia seeds, I add hemp seeds, sometimes my hulled hemp seeds, I add flax seeds. I love having a little bit of nut butter with that, almond or peanut butter, and I have lots of fruit or berries on top. It really fills me up for the day, especially with that added uh, nut butter, which I enjoy. And... um, Breakfast smoothies. That's another one that I really enjoy, especially in these summer months. And I guess when I come over to Washington, it's going to be really, really, really hot. So I'll hopefully enjoy a breakfast smoothie there as well. Um, I love to have soy milk as my choice. And I haven't talked to you about the hormone benefits of soy, but we can come to that another time. Um, (laughs) I love that. I love adding fresh greens and berries to my to my smoothies. Um, What about, um, you know, in my book, I forgot to even mention this. I've got loads of great recipes in my book, The Plant Power Doctor. So I talk, there's a whole chapter on hormone health as well as, you know, heart health, gut health, immune health, skin health, plant-based for all ages, uh, cancer. There's a lot of different things in the book, but there's also a lot of different recipes and things that I enjoy making. So lunch, um, I really enjoy having a whole grain sandwich, um, my I actually really like to have hummus and grated carrot as well and I'll add in some salad um I like having pancakes Uh, my husband makes great pancakes and I really enjoy hearty meals um so in the winter time I'll love to make things like stew um I have this great shepherd's pie recipe or cottage pie I don't even know if you have that in the US but it's a really comforting meal here in the UK and um I really really love my chickpea curry as well Love me some chickpea curry, and you better believe we've got shepherd's pie over here. It is uh, quite tasty. Yes, indeed. And uh, by the way, when you're in town for um, the ICNM, uh, you and I, we're going to go right next door. There's this wonderful place, completely plant-based. Uh, I'm going to get you this smoothie that's going to knock your socks off. It's called a cacao pow. You a fan of chocolate? Yeah, of course. I love chocolate. Yeah. All right. All right. You and me then. We've got a date at this place (laughs) called Fruitive, and it's going to be fantastic. I'm telling you, you're not going to want to go back. 
you're right. just going to want to stay right there and have another smoothie and another smoothie. That's how good the cacao pow is. I'm just telling you so you can get mentally prepared for what's going to happen. Okay, the cacao power. Well, I have to hold you to that. So I will make you take me there. <laughs> so done. So done. Absolutely. Absolutely. No problem whatsoever. Um, okay. <laughs> Can't wait to see you there. Uh, you will be speaking August 19th, but the conference is the 18th through the 20th. We're going to be recording episodes of the exam room all three days. And oh, by the way, there will be uh, 30 speakers over the course of the three days, all sharing the latest on science and nutrition, really going to take that health IQ to the next level. Still just a few limited seats remaining. So if you have not secured yours yet, get on it now because they will not last. PCRM.org slash ICNM is the place to go to register today. And Dr. Gemma Newman, you are an absolute treat. Thank you so very much for being here. I can't wait to have you back because we have so much more to talk about. I can't wait to come back. I'm looking forward to it already, Chuck. But before then, I'm going to have that cacao pal. <laughs>And there is a link to Dr. Newman's book right now in the episode notes, as is a link to join us in Washington, D.C. for the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine, August 18th through the 20th. And that is coming up soon real soon. So as this episode is released, the conference starts next week. So there is not a lot of time to lock in one of the few seats that still remain. PCRM.org slash ICNM or click the link in the episode notes to join Dr. Newman and myself and nearly 30 other speakers from around the world for three amazing days guaranteed to take your health IQ to new heights. And there's a full list of speakers available on the ICNM website when you go to register. And if you do join us in person, and I do hope that you do, we're going to be recording episodes of the exam room all throughout the conference. So be there live and in person. See how we do these shows. It would be great to do a live Q&A with you as well. And I promise you, a good time will be had by all. Now... We have some new research to talk about. A group of researchers in Australia say they have a new clue in the fight against inflammation. And vitamin D is at the center of it. Let's head to the exam room news desk for the details. Inflammation in the body is putting people at higher risk for chronic diseases. Now, researchers in Australia say one way to reduce that inflammation is to screen for vitamin D deficiency. A study of genetic data from nearly 300,000 adults finds those who have low levels of vitamin D also tend to have higher levels of C-reactive proteins, proteins that are indicative of the presence of inflammation in the body. Subsequently, the data raises the possibility that sufficient levels of vitamin D may help prevent chronic illnesses with an inflammatory component, illnesses such as cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and autoimmune diseases. The study was conducted by a team at the University of South Australia and published in the International Journal of Epidemiology. And there is a link to the study right now in the episode notes. If this sounds familiar, it's because this is far from the first study to link vitamin D deficiency to chronic illness. Researchers have been making that connection for years, but what makes this study unique is that this is world-first genetic research. World-first genetic research. 
Again, we're talking about data from almost 300,000 people and they were able to zero in on the chronic low levels of vitamin D and high levels of C-reactive proteins. Now, it's a fair question to ask how many people are not getting enough vitamin D? And the answer is a lot. One meta-analysis estimates that a quarter of adults in the US are deficient in vitamin D and 6% have severe deficiency and our neighbors to the north in Canada, the rate there, 37% deficient and 7.5% have severely low levels. Over in Europe, 40% deficiency with 13% having severe deficiency. And in other parts of the world, the numbers can be even higher. Take India, for instance, where an estimated 490 million people are not getting enough vitamin D should be noted also that the rates do fluctuate based off of age and race and a few other factors. But by and large, you're talking about a big, big, big problem. And a lot of people, just as Dr. Newman was talking about not realizing that they had PCOS, well, a lot of people also have no clue that they're deficient with vitamin D either. And the problem oftentimes isn't even discovered until they're in the hospital with some major illness. So how do you get vitamin D? What is the best source of vitamin D? Well, the body's natural source of vitamin D is right outside your door. It's the sun. When we soak up the rays, our body gets busy. It starts producing our own vitamin D and usually within just five to 15 minutes, you have plenty for the day. Now, it may take a little bit longer if you have darker skin or if you're living in a part of the world where you don't get a lot of sun. Or maybe it's winter time and you're not spending a whole heck of a lot of time outside. That's also a time to keep an eye on your levels. So if you are running low on sunlight, what do you do then? Well, here's some advice from our website, pcrm.org. Quote, fortified cereals, grains, bread, orange juice, and soy or rice milk exist as options for providing vitamin D through the diet. Supplements are also available. But as a reminder here, milk, dairy milk, does not naturally contain vitamin D. So you don't have to think that that is a tremendous source either. There are plenty of other places to get it. Plenty of other healthier sources, I should say. And vitamin D, also great for strong bones. You can't leave that out. That and exercise. I mean, you combine good amounts of vitamin D, good amounts of exercise. You put those two things together and man, your bones should be in pretty good shape. Should be in pretty, pretty good shape. But if you feel like you want a little bit more help with your vitamin D levels and really checking your nutrients across the board, you can schedule an appointment with our doctors and dietitians at the Barnard Medical Center. 202-527-7500 is the number to make that appointment, or you can do it online at barnardmedical.org. Telemedicine visits are available in a large part of the country, so make your appointment today. And a link to do that is in the episode notes, or again, you can visit barnardmedical.org. 
Coming up on the next episode of The Exam Room, Dr. Will Bolsowitz will be back to make a house call. He and I will be doing The Exam Room Live this Wednesday with a special start time of 11 a.m. Eastern. Join us on the Physicians Committee's YouTube channel or Facebook page. Join us 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific. Ask your questions right then and there. We're going to be opening up the doctor's mailbag. So let's all raise our gut health IQs together. But for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Gemma Newman for helping to raise our health IQs on this episode. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <laughs>